Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring CuriosityStream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. At less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. You are listening to the latest podcast in the History of Skipton series. My name is Ian Lockwood, and you can find all the details in these podcasts in my book, The History of Skipton, which you will be able to purchase on the internet. In the last episode, we looked at how a report into the insanitary state of the town led to the formation of the Skipton Board of Health. Today, we are turning our attention to death and diseases. The doctors who tried to cure them and ending with a topical look at vaccination, the experts who advocated it, and the sceptics who opposed it. In 1878, Frederick Barry, medical officer to the Skipton Local Board of Health, reported that the town's death rate was 24.8 per thousand population, a very high rate when Normally, for a small rural market town in this, this period, you could expect eight or nine. More than half of the deaths in Skipton were of children under five years old. Inspection reports had highlighted the town's insanitary condition and overcrowding, but Barry had his own explanation for the unusually high child mortality rate. It is my opinion that it is to be accounted for by the number of mothers employed in the mills, their children thus being left for long periods without proper attention and deprived of their natural food, he stated. His solution was to establish a creche in the town where young children could be looked after while their mothers worked. There was a general murmur of agreement from the Board of Health members, but, ever conscious of the public purse, this was an idea decades ahead of its time, and the board took no practical steps towards initiating it. However, Barry was a committed campaigner for improving the health of the town's children. Later that year, Dr Barry was reporting that 21% of babies born in the town had died in their first year. Now, just to give you a modern comparison... When I looked at the death rate of children in Skipton under the age of 12 months in 2008, the figure was 0.38% dying, not the 21% of Barry's era. Dr Barry was an ardent campaigner for improving child mortality, pointing out to the board that the figure for Skipton was much larger than the average for England as a whole. He again put this down to working women leaving their children in the care of what we today call childminders. But he had a very dim view of the practice, stating that the minders had little or no interest in their charges and fed them unsuitable food, something he called water pap. Worse, he claimed the minders, quote, drug them with what are called soothing syrups, which, where they do not actually destroy them, leave the children stunted and sickly, 
Can it be wondered that nearly 30% of the total deaths in this town were those of little children under one year of age? Again, he made a call for an infant day nurse in the town, which would, he claimed, not only save lives, but lead to a general improvement in the health of Skipton children. Dr Barry was soon to leave Skipton, as he took up a post as medical officer for Cyprus, but his successor, Dr Francis Atkinson, was similarly horrified at Skipton's dismal record. In July 1880, he made his first annual report to the board and told them that in the first quarter of the year, 48.7% of all deaths in the town were of children under five. A rate which compared unfavourably with Bradford, where 46.9% of the deaths in the same period were of under fives. Like Barry, Dr Atkinson was appalled at standards of childcare and did not hold back. It is astonishing what an amount of ignorance prevails among people as to the proper way of rearing children. The harm is done by giving firstly improper food, secondly improper quantities, thirdly at improper intervals. The most common cause of death among the under fives was given as convulsions and Atkinson said that this was not surprising as children were fed on herring, meat, gin and rum. One cannot be surprised when they, whose delicate stomachs are only intended to digest milk, should either die in convulsions, which are generally attributed to teething, or have the power of ingestion so ruined as to interfere later on with the proper assimilation of food. He agreed with his predecessor that a creche should be established in the town. Even if the charges were two pence per day, this would be less than mothers at work in the mills were paying neighbours to care for their infants while they were at work. A creche was a new concept in Britain at this time, and it would be nice to think that Skipton would be a pioneer in the field. Alas, the board fudged the issue and voted to leave the matter for further consideration. Atkinson's annual reports for the next three years all re recommended that the cattle market, with all its attendant filth, should be taken off the high street, and also that a hospital should be built to cater for infectious diseases. And for three years, he was ignored. But there was a nasty shock for the Skipton Board of Health in the summer of 1883, when their bosses, the local government board in London, wrote asking them, what steps they were planning to meet Dr Atkinson's recommendation. Those recommendations were discussed at three meetings of the board over the next six weeks. Eventually, a mealy-mouthed response was drafted, stating that they were conscious of the benefits of a hospital and indeed had plans, but due to recent expenditure, these plans were on hold. The reply from London was equally tongue-in-cheek, regretting that Skipton could not see a way towards providing a hospital and hoping it would reconsider its position very soon. The matter was put to one side until, as J.B. Dewars put it, the government would compel them to act or an increase in the number of cases justified the expenditure. However, 
in the winter of 1885 to 1886, a severe outbreak of scarlet fever forced the board to reconsider its early delay. There were a total of 13 deaths in the outbreak, which centred on Parish Church National School. Dr Atkinson informed the board that the absence of an isolation hospital meant that the children were kept at home, often in cramped conditions, and the disease would therefore spread rapidly from house to house. J.B. Dewars changed his attitude. Now a hospital was a necessity, and Atkinson was even dispatched to Ealing to see what had been done there, and draw up a report on the type of building and facilities required. Still, there were those who insisted that this was an extravagance, believing that the workhouse facilities should be used to isolate vi victims of the fever. Progress was glacial. In February 1887, the board accepted a proposal to start a subscription to mark Queen Victoria's golden jubilee of 50 years on the throne by donating towards the building of an isolation hospital. If anything was to give this fundraising scheme a prod, it was the outbreak in late 1887 of first a measles epidemic and then a smallpox outbreak. Measles claimed the lives of 58 young children in Skipton, with an average age of death being 18 months. All the infant schools in Skipton were closed three weeks before Christmas, and the premises of all were thoroughly cleansed and whitewashed. Dr Atkinson thought that outbreaks of scarlet fever earlier in the year had weakened many of the victims, making the measles epidemic all the more deadly though his conclusion may seem somewhat callous to modern eyes. Uh, there is one satisfaction in connection with so many deaths, and that is that the epidemic has carried off weakly children who would not have survived, perhaps, and if they had, they would have been delicate all their lives. The smallpox outbreak, which affected five victims in the summer of 1888, but did not claim any lives, worried the authorities. They decided to build a temporary isolation hospital with 14 beds at the sewage farm at a cost of £1,500. Yes, that's right, at the sewage farm. The temporary arrangement became permanent, although hardly adequate at the time of crisis and outbreaks of scarlet fever in 1892, 1893, and a particularly severe one in 1895, filled this temporary isolation hospital. The Skipton Board of Health had by now been scrapped, and two new authorities were in existence, Skipton Urban Council and Skipton Rural District Council for the villages nearby. The Urban Council proposed a joint venture, but the Rural Council refused to pay a third of the cost, claiming that the urban area would have far greater use of it. The Urban Council considered making provisions for a tent, but realised that putting seriously ill people in a tent in mid-November might not be the best way to facilitate a recovery. A change of heart by the Rural District Council allowed plans for a site on Corder Gill to be dusted off. The Urban Council would pay four-sevenths of the cost, the Rural Council 
two sevenths and Silsden Council one seventh. Tenders were invited and the three councils formed a joint hospital committee, although they were quick to insist that the maximum cost for the proposed 46-bed hospital would not exceed £10,000. The work on the joint hospital was tediously slow. It took until 1899 to get the legal paperwork sorted out, and work was not due to begin until 1900. It didn't. It was not until 1901 that the building started to rise, and Skipton had had to live through yet another serious outbreak of scarlet fever in the summer of 1900, when there were 134 cases and four deaths from the disease. But the new isolation hospital at Corder Gill was opened in June 1902, although the cost had risen way beyond that £12,000 to £16,000, and the number of beds had fallen to just 42. Still, it was widely considered a great boom to the area. The new building was functional rather than ornate, and beds were laid out in three blocks, each one intended for isolating just one disease. Although in times of a severe epidemic, all three blocks could be used together to fight the outbreak. Dr Atkinson, whose 23 years of campaigning for a permanent isolation hospital had finally paid off, was called on to speak at the opening and reflected that good things take time. The isolation hospital functioned for 45 years, but after World War II, the increased use of vaccinations made it redundant. By this time, the National Health Service was being established and in 1947, Cordegill was converted into a maternity hospital for the town. In July 1952, the 1,000th baby was born at Cordegill, the unnamed son of Mrs Mary Wilson. The opening of Airedale Hospital, with its dedicated maternity unit, marked the end of Cordegill. In 1979, the old isolation hospital site was sold and houses were put up there in 1981. Infectious diseases were the principal cause of concern for public health. However, one unusual case was the talk of the town in 1889. A 14-year-old Skipton girl called Mary Jane Wilson was staying at her aunt's, the widow of the Skipton postmaster. And there she was bitten by the family dog. The dog had been acting strangely, growling and attacking strangers. And when he died, it was found to be suffering from rabies. It was decided to send the girl to Paris for treatment at the newly founded and now world-renowned Pasteur Institute, where she was treated by Louis Pasteur himself. The girl had 16 injections over a two-week period, then returned home to Skipton. To fund the cost, a subscription fund was set up and it raised £6 more than the £39 expenses to send Wilson and a chaperone to Paris. At a meeting of all those who had donated, it was decided to send the excess profit to the Institute for its researches. Elsewhere, the new sewage system and the efforts of the local Board of Health were having an effect. The death rates fell slowly, the proportion of child deaths dropped and the authorities were prompt to act upon any outbreak of disease. They closed schools if there was a significant infectious outbreak among the pupils. 
For example, in early 1893, an outbreak of first scarlet fever and then influenza closed Christchurch School for six weeks, Water Street School for four weeks and the British School for one week. The health of the town, sparked by the Skipton Board of Health, was improving. In 1894, the board compiled a tally of death rates in the town between 1851 and the current year. The trend was unmistakably downwards. From 27.2 deaths per 1,000 population down to 18 per 1,000 in the first and last year of the survey. The worst ever year was 1857, when 44.8 deaths per 1,000 was recorded. Now, just to put this into perspective, the number of coronavirus deaths per 1,000 population at the time of this podcast was 6.1 per 1,000. So 44.8 per 1,000 just shows you how virulent death was in Skipton. Measures such as an improved water supply, a sewage system, a clamp down on the building of overcrowded housing and public measures to prevent hygiene infringements had all contributed to this improvement in the town's health and reduction in the number of infectious diseases. What about the medical ailments? Prior to the Victorian era, the medical care of Skiptonians was in the hands of apothecaries, dispensing a range of natural medicines and elixirs of varying efficacy, and also in the hands of surgeons, who sometimes doubled as barbers, which probably gives an indication of their techniques. By the 19th century, developments in medical knowledge had raised the skill levels and practice requirements, and the term MD was now used to denote a health practitioner. Among the first in Skipton was Thomas Dodgson, who practised on the high street and was a great believer in the medicinal properties of water. So much so that he allowed his practice to lapse and embarked on a financially ruinous venture to promote Skipton as a spa town. I'll cover this in a later podcast. There were three other medical practitioners operating in the town by the mid-19th century. Doctors Wiley, Granger and McNabb. And if the names seem familiar, they supplemented their income by positions as medical officers of the workhouse and feature in some of my earlier podcasts. The end of the 19th century saw the beginning of a medical dynasty which was to be prominent in the town for a century and lives on with the medical practice which still bears their name. In 1884... George Fisher, an Irishman whose grandfather it was claimed had been an officer at Waterloo, arrived in the town to work as assistant to Dr William Birtwistle, whose practice was in Swadford Street, on the site of the court building now occupied by boys. Fisher became a partner and then took over the practice when Birtwistle moved south to retire in 1895. Along the way, George Fisher married well into the mill-owning Dewhurst family. First, his nephew, Bob Fisher, and then his son, Annesley Fisher, worked alongside him. Another son, Brian Fisher, was killed during World War I. 
And although technically George Fisher retired in, 18, in 1938 at the age of 80, he continued to see a number of patients. He had been seeing patients the day before he was taken ill and died the following day. George was the rural doctor, with Bob looking after town patients. Bob was based in a separate building, the old Craven Bank. And by 1832, the three fishers, George, Bob and Annesley, were equal partners, although George was by now well into his 70s, and nephew Bob was not that much younger. Accordingly, Guy Olleranshaw was taken on as a partner. The Swadford Street surgery operated by George was abandoned and the four doctors operated from behind the high street with a wooden extension housing a waiting and consulting room for George. Thus, by 1939, the Fisher practice was well established in the town. A history of the practice written by a later partner, Dr John Goodall, gives an insight into medical provision in this era. The Swadford Street practice, when it was going, was also the Fisher home, with a waiting room between the family living room and the kitchen. The consulting room was up the stairs, and the dispensary of medicines separated the family's bedrooms and bathroom. The practice was run by George's wife, Lillian, she of the Dewhurst family. And Dr Goodhall paints her as a minor tyrant, a barrier between her husband and his patients, rooting out what she considered flippant inquiries. As most patients were charged, it seems plausible these must have been the working men who were entitled to free treatment under the terms of the 1911 National Insurance Act. The Fisher practice underwent big changes in 1939. George died that year. Bob had died in 1937 and John Goodall had joined as first assistant, but as a junior partner. The practice also moved into a purpose-built surgery on Otley Street. There are, of course, two practices in Skipton, Fisher and Dinley House, which can trace its origins back to the same period. In 1877, Dr Wiley was operating his practice at 4 High Street. This is the one that was to become Dinley House. Dr Wiley's upbuilding is better known to modernise as David Goldie's Men's Outfitters for many years, and it's now Alexander's Café and Bar. In this year, 1877, Dr Wiley sold his practice to Dr Forsyth Wilson. This doctor was the father of Winston Churchill's personal physician, Lord Moran. Now, Lord Moran's often cited as a famous Skiptonian. I'll only comment on this by quoting the memoirs of Sir Jock Colville, Winston Churchill's private secretary, who said, Lord Moran was never present when history was made, but he was invited to lunch afterwards. Wiley moved to London, but it evidently did not work out as some 12 months later, he returned to Skipton and took up a partnership with Dr McNabb, whose practice was based on Newmarket Street. Meanwhile, another practice had been started in 1901, 
by a Dr. Waugh, who moved to Clifford House on Keithley Road in 1904. He retired in 1909, handing over the practice to Dr. Norman MacLeod, who was the father of the future Chancellor of the Exchequer under Edward Heath's government, Ian MacLeod. And this practice merged with the number four High Street practice after World War I. So in 1938, there were three doctors' practices in Skipton. The one started by Wiley and McNabb at Newmarket Street, McLeod at Clifford House, and the Fishers behind the High Street but preparing to move to Otley Street. The main doctor at Wiley and McNabb's old practice was now Dr W. H. Robinson, who had joined them in 1911. And it was his son, Cedric, who merged the practice with Clifford House shortly after arriving in Skipton. Dr Goodall, in his history of the doctors, said that relations between Fisher and Clifford House were extremely cool. But Dr Oleranshaw set out to alter this, and by 1938, little trace of enmity remained. He goes on to note the discussions about an, an amalgamation between Clifford and Fisher practices took place in 1939 and again in 1970, but the reasons why it never occurred lay outside the two practices, he concluded somewhat mysteriously. By 1948, Dr. Robinson was part of the Clifford House practices and the number had consolidated to two. The formation of the National Health Service in 1948 was to provide a major turning point for the two practices. According to Goodall, a list of pros and cons of the NHS was made. The plus points of the NHS included no bills to be, be prepared and collected, no bad debts, the ready availability of specialists, freedom from considering if a patient was going to be able to pay for treatment, and very little change in the doctor-patient relationship. On the debit side was the fact that the NHS recognised only a minimum service, not a maximum, with the result that there was no financial recompense for giving over and above the minimum required. The new NHS highlighted the Fisher surgery as a model for a group practice rather than the one-man band type of practice, which was very common. The Fishers on Otley Street had four consulting rooms, each with a separate examination room. They had an adequate office for records and adequate ancillary staff, which included a caretaker. This reputation was to earn the Fisher practice considerable publicity. It was included in an influential book, Good General Practice by Dr Stephen Taylor, published in 1954, which was commissioned in response to a highly critical Lancet report by a visiting Australian GP. The Fisher doctor's views were put forward as a modern enlightened provision of GP services. There also followed an appearance on an ITV documentary called On Call to the Nation, and even an article in the New York Post. The Fisher practice was noted for the long service of its doctors. Annesley Fisher worked there for 35 years, 1919 to 1954. His son Brian for 30, 
1964 to 1994, Guy Alaron Show for 39 years until 1971, John Goodall, the man who wrote the history, for 46 until 1983, and his son Jeremy for 34 years until 2012. In more recent times, both surgeries have moved to new purpose-built facilities. Clifford House moved to Newmarket Street in 1982, taking the name of the building on which it was constructed, Dinley House. And the Fisher practice left Otley Street for a new medical centre opened off Coach Street in 1993. Finally in this episode, I want to look at vaccinations. Another highly topical subject when we're hoping for a vaccination to solve the coronavirus, but social media conspirators are forming the battle lines to resist. Under an act of 1867, it was the responsibility of the Workhouse Board of Guardians to ensure that children were vaccinated against smallpox free of charge. But there was huge opposition from people who believed that the vaccination caused other illness and was ineffective. In 1875, Yorkshire was hit by a severe outbreak of smallpox, which resulted in five cases in Skipton, two of them fatal. The Skipton Guardians put up strongly worded posters in the town, reminding residents that they had to provide the registrar with a certificate of vaccination within six months of a child's birth, and warning of prosecution if this did not happen. The posters only sparked a public meeting, attended by one Reverend Hume Rothery, a Cheltenham parson who had a fierce opposition to the vaccination law and was chairman of the National Anti-Vaccination League. At this meeting in Skipton, the clergyman claimed that more people who were vaccinated caught the disease than unvaccinated, and he secured a resolution calling for the abolition of the infusion of rotten, venomous matter directly into the blood of living human beings. Then he pulled out a copy of the act and prepared to burn it on stage, when a local called Mr Haig jumped up and said, it's a childish act, as the legislation would still exist, even if the paper was burnt. And a lawyer called Cragg said his profession would not allow him for laws of the land to be burnt. Hume Rothery appealed to the audience and only agreed to desist because the numbers crying no, no, were at least the equal and probably more than those shouting burn, burn. The argument came to a head at the April meeting of the Board of Guardians when Dr Symes, the Medical Officer of Health appointed by the Board to administer these free vaccinations, recommended the prosecution of William Hallam, a Skipton weaver with an unvaccinated child living in the same yard off Swadford Street as one of the victims of the smallpox attack. Given the severe warnings promised by the Guardian on its posters, he expected the recommendation to be backed. Instead, several of the Guardians argued against the principle of vaccination the most vociferous of them being the guardian representing Bradley, called Throop, who claimed that his perfectly healthy daughter had fallen into ill health after being vaccinated, resulting in many years of suffering before her death from tuberculosis. 
Six guardians voted for prosecution, but nine were against, although most abstained. Dr Symes was astonished. When later that week he made his report to the local Board of Health, he read out one of the Board of Guardians posters, which spoke of a terrible and loathsome disease and the strong action against those who refused to vaccinate their children first. He described the Board of Guardians' decision not to prosecution as extraordinary and weak-minded. There were more than 100 children who were not vaccinated in Skipton and they posed a serious threat to hopes of keeping the disease in check. This argument must have been a serious embarrassment to J.B. Dewhurst, who sat on both the Board of Guardians and the Board of Health. He suggested that the Guardians should be politely asked to reconsider by the Board of Health. The pressure on the Guardians was intense. Their reluctance to take any action against vaccination refusers was raised in Parliament by the local MP, Sir Matthew Wilson, who had been a Guardian himself a year previously. The MP attended the next monthly meeting of the Guardians to speak. He concluded the issue was quite simple. Would Skipton Guardians enforce the law or not? The answer was yes, they would, as a 14-8 vote to overturn their earlier decision was recorded. And so, a week later, Mr Hallam appeared before the court where his objection that he was morally opposed to vaccination was abruptly brushed aside and he was fined 20 shillings. A second father, a coach builder called Lawson, was fined the same amount, but he didn't accept the punishment meekly. He asked the bench, why were only two parents of 100 unvaccinated children being prosecuted? Could he expect to see the other 98 in court next week? The answer was no. Dr Symes reported to the Board of Health that he believed the cases in court would serve as an example. In the following years, the vaccination issue was quiet in Skipton, but gradually, either through neglect or a resurgence of opposition, the number of children who were unvaccinated grew steadily. And in the summer of 1892, the Board of Guardians received a report that 87 children born in Skipton in 1891 had not been vaccinated and it was recommended to restart its policy of prosecuting fathers. It cannot be a coincidence that within a month a Skipton anti-compulsory vaccination society was born to agitate against the legislation. Three months later, no prosecutions had been made, and when Guardian Lieutenant Colonel Maud asked why, he was told that the necessary paperwork had not been filled in. The Guardians were clearly unwilling to proceed. One called Fletcher claimed that the prosecutions were simply a tax on the working man who had his objections to vaccination. The board narrowly voted in favour of suspending any action until a Royal Commission inquiry into vaccination was concluded. Not surprisingly, the board's reluctance to force the issue gave parents every excuse to do nothing. The figures for 1892 showed that only 146 of the 404 Skipton births had resulted in a vaccination for smallpox. 
the anti-vaccination society was delighted. When in 1896, Lieutenant Colonel Moore tried again to raise issue, the board again voted to wait the Royal Commission's report, which the Herald noted was taking an unconscionably long time. But the Royal Commission report finally did appear, and it resulted in the 1898 Vaccination Act, which introduced a conscience clause, allowing parents who did not believe vaccination was safe or effective to obtain a certificate of exemption, but they had to apply to the local magistrates for one. At the first Skipton Court after the Act came into effect, there were six applications. The following week, there were between 20 and 30 applications. The week after, more than 200. The magistrates simply swore them in in batches as simply, are you a conscientious objector? And issued the relevant certificate if the answer was yes. In total, 1,400 anti-vaccination certificates were issued by the Skipton magistrates in December of 1898. That was the deadline for registering. After that, parents of a newborn had four months to apply for a certificate. Throughout the country, the number of vaccinations fluctuated wildly depending on the views of magistrates. The number of vaccination exemption certificates given in the Skipton Court was put at 1,858 by the Craven Herald in 1899. And while this figure includes Barnoldrick and Silsden, it is astonishing that the corresponding figure of certificates issued in Birmingham was just 42, in Manchester, 19, and Liverpool, a mere seven. Skipton's figure was not far below London's, although Oldham had the highest figures, where 27,052 certificates against vaccination were issued. Thereafter, vaccination seems to have been most unpopular in Skipton. In 1921, a report to the Board of Guardians noted that of 197 births in Skipton in the previous calendar year, only 31 had been vaccinated, with 142 objections offered and the remaining 24 simply ignoring the procedure. But the arrival of the NHS seems to have altered these prejudices. Nationwide campaigns to treat measles, scarlet fever and other deadly diseases proved effective and they were practically eliminated. And in, 18, in 1961, a three-year-old Skipton girl, Denise Critchlow, who lived on Brookside, caught smallpox. As a result, Large queues were formed outside the Skipton's doctor's surgeries of parents wanting their children vaccinated at last, and the supplies were quickly exhausted. New supplies had to be brought in for all the vaccination resistors. Incidentally, the girl had caught the disease while in a Bradford hospital and was one of just five cases in the West Riding, and the outbreak was quickly halted. For a long period, vaccination was a standard, until a widely discredited report claimed there were side effects for children. And in recent years, the battle has raged between the experts 
and those who resort to social media for conspiracy theories. That concludes this episode, slightly longer than some of the others, and we've looked at the health of the town. We've covered the opening of the isolation hospital at Cordergill, and next time we'll look at how two other hospitals were built. A cottage hospital on Granville Street, and later a general hospital on Keithley Road. Until then, thank you for listening. New on Curiosity Stream. Squirrels. They're quick, they're quirky, and they go nuts for nuts. From stashing food to fighting snakes, these feisty foragers know how to survive. Don't miss Nuts About Squirrels. And MTV's Killing the Radio Star. Dungeons and Dragons is sweeping the nation. And moms across the country are in a moral uproar. It's parents versus pop culture on a new episode of That Time When. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.